this episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. We got so much to talk about today. So much, in fact, that we're going to be recording this like over a span of separate timestamps during the day because of all the events that are occurring the baseball world over today. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 6th of December. It is Rule 5 Draft Day uh, in baseball, so we'll be talking about the Rule 5 Draft coming up here in a little while. It is also potentially Juan Soto Trade Deal Day, uh, and if we come back in a later segment and we start talking about the Juan Soto trade, then you will know that it had not happened. We started recording this, and then later it did, and that's how linear time works. Uh, my name is Tyler Ron, Sam Dykstra, and Benjamin Hill are in New York City. Gents, what's going on? How are you? Good, good. Yeah, it's it's very much a holding pattern right now in, in my neck of the woods just because, like you said, Tyler, we're recording this Wednesday around noon Eastern. In two hours is the Rule 5 draft. Um, so on Part of me is buzzing with anticipation, and again, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, we'll see who actually gets picked, and that'll either heighten my uh, excitement for the Rule 5 draft or tamper it a little bit. And the other part of me is trying to keep it in check. You know, like you look at who has been taken in the Rule 5 draft in, in recent years and who's getting returned, and it's it's not superstars anymore. Gone are the days of, like, uh, you know, uh, the Hamiltons, the Santanas, the Roberto Clementes getting taken in the Rule 5 draft. That doesn't happen anymore. But there's always a chance somebody could find a, you know, a back-end reliever who really out or a, a fourth outfielder who becomes a starter. Um, so, yeah, and, and the fact that Juan Soto has not been traded yet and we're still waiting to see if the Yankees and Padres pull through on that, or maybe a mystery team comes through with a late offer to beat the Yankees. Uh, it's a, it's a crazy time in baseball, and it's nice to actually have some buzz because the first two days of the winter meetings were, were yeah, quiet. A little anticlimactic. It's not anymore, though. It is it is loud, and a, a lot seems to be happening. Things are getting interesting now. Yeah. Uh, and with that, uh, we will chat with our number one overall pick every week, and that is Benjamin Hill. Hi, Ben. Hey Tyler. Hey Sam. Yeah, it's uh, Sam is literally uh, buzzing with anticipation. I'm sitting here next to him, and there's just like vibrations, like He's on just like like, like yeah, like coffee cups and uh, phones are rattling on the table. I mean, this guy gets uh, excited for Rule Five. He was trying to act low key, but it's a very special time. The the Rule Five draft. I mean, no other sport does it. So I think that's kind of cool. Like the whole point of it is to give guys opportunities that they're not getting. In That's the, true. At their current parent club, so it's like it's a nice wrinkle, uh, but you know, I, I I try to keep it in check every year. That's true. Um, yeah, but, I mean, as for me, like, yeah, we did the last week's episode on Thursday, and then uh, I took Friday off. I had a college friend come in town. I saw the penultimate kiss show ever on Friday night at Madison Square Garden. Then went right from that into my brother's wedding. Uh, Saturday and all day Sunday. Got back from that Monday. And then um, Jill, my fiance, was sick yesterday. I had to do childcare. And so now I'm back in the office. It's just like, I feel like the last thing I almost did work wise was the pod. And here, here we are again, <laughs> but uh, trying to get up to speed. Well, and we're jamming this into the schedule a day early because I'm leaving town tomorrow. Uh, and I plan on not thinking about work at all. Uh, two things. Number one, Every time I say, just like anyone else, uh, I used to use the word penultimate before I met Ben Hill, but now every time I use it, I think of Ben. 
And I use it every single college basketball broadcast because at the under eight minute media timeout, I always say we've reached our penultimate media timeout. So Ben is in my head on a, a fairly regular basis. So that's, uh, I don't know, probably bad news. It's for, you know, it wasn't me, you'd be like, oh, that's cool. that somebody's thinking of me. And then it's like, what is this lunatic? Um, but uh, secondly, it's rare that I get like a handful of days. Uh, away from the broadcasting schedule uh, in especially like in December, January, February. But uh, the team that I work for will play a game tonight and then not again until next Wednesday. So the wife and I are uh, we're heading for a vacation. And that sounds delightful. Like at times I'm like, your whole life is a vacation. You broadcast sports and get to talk about them with your friends on uh, podcasts and things. But I'm going on an actual vacation tomorrow. I'm very excited about it. Sam over there is like Mr. Vacation. But uh, yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah. Senior Sam getaway, took, we call him. <laughs> two weeks and took awesome trips. And then I just make yeah, fun two of him weeks of a 52 week year. I take <laughs> off and. I did see somebody posted a thing on Instagram the other day that was like, use your PTO. Your job doesn't care about you. And I was like, hell yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so it made me very happy. I texted Sam uh, when we got done recording the podcast and I knew he was leaving. And I was like, hey, man, enjoy the heck out of that trip because that's going to be fantastic. And so I'm going to circle back on this later and keep beating you over the head with it. So yeah, but you have to <laughs> take text this one me, nice thing. You have to text me tomorrow. Enjoy that trip. And mine's only okay. like four days, Sam. Anyway, uh, you know, it's it's uh, who would I be if not someone who is who is giving my uh, one of my most beloved friends all the grief in the world that he deserves. And that's Sam Dykstra. Sam's also, um, you know, the uh, the dude who gets to do all of the big time breaking news stuff. And right now he's sending a text and I'm assuming that he's just like he's texting with Juan Soto right now. Like, have they given you any indication of what the prospect package will be in return for San Diego? Is that who it was? Was it Juan Soto? Uh, check your phone, Tyler. Oh, it wasn't Juan Soto. It was me. Uh, I, I, I enjoy that trip, he says. I'm just doing it now before I forget. You know, you said I have to send the text, so I'm just doing it now. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, he has oh, you in his phone as Mon Soto. For yeah, Mon Soto. <laughs> That's how highly I think of you. Uh, you should change my name to that. Uh, that would be, be very funny. And also, it would just be the most disappointing text you've ever gotten. When you look at your phone, you're like, what? Oh, Monsoto. Never mind. Monsoto. Yeah. Uh, well, with that, we welcome you into this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. As noted, a lot to get to, and we will get to it throughout our day. But for you, It'll be in one tidy podcast package. Uh, we're going to kick things off uh, on this week's episode of the show before the show, where, of course, you can find us on any of your favorite podcasting services and give us five stars and you can get in touch podcast at MILB.com. Uh, we actually got a great email from uh, one of our favorite dudes, Johnny Bolin, who we have had on the podcast before. Johnny emailed us after that Thanksgiving episode and just said, great episode, guys. I loved hearing the origin story of each of you. Always excellent. Uh, and Johnny, we love you, man. Thanks for thanks for always being tuned in. And um, let's let's get right into it with uh, one of the newest looks in minor league baseball, which actually, as of recording, not yet officially unveiled to the world. But uh, the Northwest Arkansas Naturals with a new logo package. And let's turn to our correspondent, Benjamin Hill, for the update on the Northwest Arkansas Naturals, which in my mind is one of the most difficult identity concepts to convey but they do a very good job, and now they've got a, a new look that also does a good job. Yeah, the Northwest Arkansas Naturals, AA affiliate of the Kansas City Royals. They play in the town of Springdale, Arkansas, but obviously represent the larger Northwest Arkansas. 
portion of that state. Uh, they've been a team since 2008 after relocating from Wichita. I mean, Wichita now, of course, has a team again in the Texas League in the form of the wind surge, but the Wichita Wranglers moved to Springdale, Arkansas prior to 2008, became the Naturals. The name is, well, you know, Arkansas is the natural state and um, that particular portion of Arkansas in the Northwest is known for its natural beauty. Uh, so they're the Northwest Arkansas Naturals. They've always emphasized, uh, you know, natural beauty in their logo, you know, featuring a uh, nature scene, but uh, they've, you know, really redone the logo, the look, the word mark. Um, so it really pops. Uh, the color scheme is broadly the same, but these new colors are more, uh, a little more fluorescent, I would say, a little more just colorful, if that makes sense. I mean, every color is colorful by virtue of being a color, but these are more uh, colorful marks. Uh, they got yellow. They got two shades of blue. Uh, they've got red. Uh, the main logo, where is that main logo? I had it up here, right here. Talk about preparation. I got it. But I just want to look at it again. But the main logo has um, the state of Arkansas in an outline. And within that state outline, they've got woods, they've got a river, they've got mountains, and they have a baseball peeking out over the mountains in what is the northwest portion of the logo. Uh, so it's a, it's a really sharp look. And um, for those who keep track of this kind of thing, it was not done by Brandios or Studio Simon, but Torch Creative out of Dallas, uh, Texas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And they had worked on the uh, Midland Rockhounds rebrand uh, a couple years ago. And when I pulled up that story, Tyler, you wrote that story, uh, I think a couple years ago. But the Northwest Arkansas Naturals, also a team that's not based in Texas, but play in the Texas League. They saw what uh, Midland, who actually do play in Texas, had done, but another team in the Texas League. They decided to go with Torch, and uh, I think it is a sharp new look. Um, you know, nothing radical. They're still emphasizing the natural beauty of the state, but uh, colors that really pop, and uh, you know, it's a new way to present it. And they'll have this N. Uh, on their home and road caps, you know, the N with within the N is, you know, natural beauty, the river, the the woods, the mountain. And that's on a yellow cap for home and a red cap for away. So they are going to look uh, quite a bit different this year, will the Northwest Arkansas Naturals. And also, you know, back when they had a name the team contest prior to that 2008 season in Northwest Arkansas, uh, Thunder Chickens was the runner up. And I don't know where the thunder came from specifically, although the old logo did have lightning in it. I think it was just referencing the severe weather of the region, I suppose. But uh, the chickens aspect of Thunder Chickens was because uh, Tyson Foods is based in Springdale. George's Chickens is based in Springdale. The poultry industry is one of the biggest employers in that region. So now the team, in addition to still having their uh, what is now uh, – the growling chickens alternate identity, they have a batting practice cap slash alternate logo featuring a chicken uh, as a standalone thing. And in talking to the team's uh, vice president and general manager, Justin Cole, you know, he said, you know, they're going to start with that on the periphery, but maybe find more and more ways to incorporate the chicken as time goes on, in addition to the primary marks emphasizing the natural beauty. And then I also asked Justin about something they're not doing now, but he said they do want to do this down the line. Um, it's one of those things, I think, the kind of thing that listeners of this podcast find interesting. The Naturals name is, of course, primarily a reference to everything we described already, the natural beauty, the natural state, and whatever. But the team is owned by the Rich Entertainment Group, 
you know, an offshoot of Rich Foods that also owns the Buffalo Bisons. In 1984, the movie The Natural was filmed at Buffalo's War Memorial Stadium, and that brought a lot of attention to the franchise, was a boon to the franchise uh, for the Buffalo Bisons and thus for that ownership group. So The Natural's name is also a little bit of a tie-in to the fact that the same ownership group owns the Buffalo Bisons and The Natural was shot in Buffalo. So I think they might find ways to maybe more throwback theme type things with that or find a way to incorporate that uh, secondary meaning of the team name uh, into the visuals down the line, which I think would be a cool little uh, you know, way to go about things uh, as they progress. Yeah, what's Robert Redford up to these days? Let's get him to the ballpark. Why not? Yeah, I mean, truly, why not? Yeah, yeah. Home run derby with Robert Redford. Yeah, he could probably still still hit a few. Uh, yeah. The fact that uh, no team has done the New York Knights as an alternate identity yet is kind of surprising to me. I wonder if that, that's got to be like that's a copyright, be a thing. copyright thing. Yeah. I would imagine. Um, ben, one thing that I will uh, note about this uh, new look for Northwest Arkansas, the word mark, especially the naturals word mark, um, not necessarily the Northwest Arkansas, which is above it, but it's like very 70s looking to me. There's like a real heavy drop shadow and stroke around it, and it's got an outline. It's a very retro looking thing, um, which is kind of cool. It's a different take from a lot of the word marks that we see. It's, it looks a lot like the Superman movies. Yes. Yeah. Which, it's you know, like are, you, is of that area that you're talking about. It, yeah. Like if you were going to see it like, on a movie poster in 1974, it would not feel out of, pay, out of place. Right. You know what? I didn't like use that word to describe it or retro aesthetic, but I, I think you're right. Um, it does have that vibe. I think it works really well on the yellow. I could see it. Yeah. Working on that, you know, that type of t-shirt that was very prevalent in the 70s yeah like maybe you have the white background but yellow three-quarter length sleeves type right of thing. a raglan um, tee if you will yeah a raglan thank you tyler <laughs> i knew i knew you would knew that um and i do like the the color scheme how they have northwest arkansas in red then naturals in a white script but it's on a blue background with a yellow trim around it there's this does uh definitely pop <laughs> quite a bit more than the old logo yeah and you you mentioned the yellow a few times i think that's what pops most to me about this because i when i think about Northwest Arkansas Naturals before this, it was that darker blue, gray, right. hints of red around it. Uh, this yellow is really a, not a radical change, but like a, it is a change. It is a notable change. And you talked about the hat being yellow. Yellow is not something we see a lot in baseball. I mean, the A's, the Pirates, you know, it's it's part of the scheme for sure. But I like teams embracing something other than red and blue. And this is an attempt to do that in a way that doesn't necessarily tie into the to the major league club. This is gonna yellow is gonna be wholly their own. I know the Royals have like gold, but not yellow in this way. I also uh I don't know if there are any teams in the minors that wear a primary yellow hat, Ben. Like I'm you know, hmm. looking that's on a the good hat wall. The only uh, Montgomery yellow hat has I don't know if they yeah, have I'm primary a... yellow yeah, that's hat, true. but they do they have do. yellow hats. Uh, the oh, only yeah, yellow hat point. that I own is a Mexican league hat. Um, so I don't know of any, yeah, Montgomery's, I don't know if that's their primary home hat, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, with the actual yellow background, the Salt Lake sometimes incorporate that a little bit, but I guess that's yellow on a black background, but mm, having the hat itself, the base color of the hat be yellow is, yeah. Definitely a rarity. That's why I bought, I have this uh, Canieros hat from Los Mochis in the Mexican Pacific League, and I got it like basically because it's a bright yellow hat. And it also has a bird swinging a sugar cane as a bat, which I found very cool. But I was like, wait, I don't see yellow hats a lot. There's not a lot of yellow hats uh, in baseball. So I'm kind of, I'm into that. I like somebody, I feel 
at this stage in in the design world, more color is better because we have gone through this era where like everything's been muted down to like grays and blacks and whites and browns and, and all neutral things. I think especially when sports franchises grab a color and say like, no, that's our identity. I find that very cool. I'm glad that more teams are doing that. Yeah, and even the red is is kind of a yeah. fuchsia. Yeah, it's red. like a much it's not, brighter it's not red. Red, red, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's more red than pink, but it has uh, some pink, uh, pink elements to it. Yeah, um, definitely a more vibrant, uh, lighter shade of red. I'm with you. Um, I also, it, it, Sam made a very good point a little bit ago when he said, like, you know, embracing less just strictly red and blue, I think is a good thing. And uh, it reminded me of when I did a story on the Asheville Tourists uh, logo history, name history, all that kind of stuff. Um, someone with the tourists told me that uh, when they changed to the most recent color scheme, they got an angry letter from a fan who said that every baseball team's color should be red, white and blue. Because it's the American pastime. And I was like, how boring would that be if every team took the field in the exact same color scheme? I think that would be awful. Yeah. And you, I mean, again, I go back to the A's. What if the A's were yeah. like, yeah. what are you going to tell them? That's lame. It's one of the um, best uniforms in sports. Exactly. Um, all right, Ben, what else, uh, what else you got? What else is coming up? What else is, uh, is new is popping. Yeah, as I said, you know, not a ton, given the fact that I really haven't worked much between now and uh, it's been busy, but I haven't uh, done actual uh, work much since we taped the last podcast. Uh, I did have the foresight last week to get my newsletter together. Thank goodness I did, because I would not have had time for that this week. But that will be the exciting conclusion of um, my four-part series highlighting all the food items at all the stops along the way. You know, of course, I would include that stuff, you know, throughout the season as I recap my ballpark visits, but not everything got included or sometimes I wasn't able to go in the room. So I've had four standalone food-based newsletters uh, on, you know, in the newsletter, the Ben's Biz Beat, as well as running separately on MILB.com. So this last one appearing on Thursday in your inbox, please subscribe to the Ben's Biz Beat will focus on my very last trip of the season, which we've talked about, you know, not that long ago because it was only a couple months ago. It was in September, but where I hit Nashville, Bowling Green, Louisville, Indianapolis, and Columbus. And so we have uh, a lot of great food items from those five locations, and that'll wrap up uh, all the food-based coverage from this season. And uh, I still might trickle out a few standalone road trip stories because I just keep finding them. You know, it's kind of like... You find like coins in the cushion of your couch. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can do this story, too. And um, while the full scale, you know, rebrands, new logos. That's such a good analogy before why I let you. <laughs> that's a very, <laughs> when you said that, I smiled very large. That's a, I, think that's I was a proud of that because I didn't have it in my mind until I said it. Once in a while, the brain comes through, you know. Um, but I think we're about done now with uh, the primary big rebrands. Uh, you know, after we, we've already discussed Greensboro and Rome and now Northwest Arkansas. But, of course, we'll see a lot of alternate marks. We'll see new alternate identities. Um, you know, I think the promo release season will kick into gear. Not so much in December, but we'll start to see some things trickle out. I know we got some news from Louisville coming pretty soon. Uh, so we'll just keep rolling. There's always uh, always going to be something. And when we talk next week, I'll probably worked a more normal week. And who knows what will happen in between now and then. We'll be full to bursting per usual. Always. Always. Um, all right, Sam, it's interview time. Who are we hearing from? Yeah, this week, uh, 
to number 14 Braves prospect David McCabe. Uh, McCabe was a fourth-round pick of the Braves in 2022. He played upwards of 120 games during this first full season for him between single A and high A. He finished his season in the Arizona Fall League, so he already had a pretty full summer, then played in the AFL. I'm excited to talk to him now because I feel like I talked to so many guys during the AFL. They're in the thick of things. Now, a few weeks removed, we're going to get him to reflect on that experience, reflect on his first full season and what it's like to be in the Braves system right now, given how much Major League success is happening there at the top level. So here's me talking to David McCabe. Well, we're very pleased to be joined on the show before the show, the official minor league baseball podcast this week by number 14 Braves prospect David McCabe, fresh off a of time in the Arizona Fall League and so many other things in his first full season. First off, David, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and, and let's just kind of get into where you are right now at this point of the offseason. We're speaking here early December. You just got off a long first full season and an Arizona Fall League campaign. Where are you in terms of workouts? Are you touching any bats or baseballs or anything, or what do you do in this time? Yeah, I'm not a guy who really loves taking breaks. So basically, since I got home, I've been doing everything. I've been hitting, lifting, throwing. Um, the volume's been reduced a little bit just to give my body a little bit of a break. But overall, I've been just continuing to roll right into the offseason like I normally would. Yeah, and you were a fourth-round pick in 2022 out of the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. This is now your second offseason. What did you learn from last season, last offseason that you're implementing now? Um, I think just that the offseason is really important. It's a long season, and using the offseason to prepare and build up and be ready for the demands of the season is extremely important, and it's something that I focus on very detailed in the offseason. Yeah, was there any type of workout or any particular drill you felt like really worked for setting you up for that first full season last year? Um, not necessarily anything in particular. It's just there's a lot of volume in the weight room in the offseason um, just to handle the demands of how long the season is and how long you're on your feet each and every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fair enough. And we talked about the AFL and how you participated in the AFL this year playing for Salt River. Um, what were your takeaways? I mean, it's been a couple of weeks now since the AFL was over. You know, what, what did you take away from that experience? Yeah, it was an awesome experience. I think just seeing how good everyone was, there wasn't any game or any at bat or any play where you could take a pitch off. Everyone was super talented and really good competition. And it was a ton of fun competing against a bunch of really good players. Mm -hmm. At what point did the Braves come to you and say, Hey, we want you to get in even more baseball. Um, I think it was late August where they let me know. Um, I was in Rome with Keyshawn Ogan, so they called both of us into our manager's office, um, and they let us know, and it was kind of a shock and just excitement from both of us. Yeah, so how much did you know about the AFL before that, in terms of if you say it was a shock? Yeah, I knew about it. Um, I knew it's obviously an honor and an awesome experience to go to and one I wanted to do, but it wasn't something I was prepared for or expecting. So hearing that I was going was really cool for me. Yeah. And you performed pretty well there. You had a 448 on base percentage, which was eighth best in the league. Um, you know, what was the key to that? I, I know you see so many different arms and they're so good there, uh, but it can be a little bit of a hitter's league and guys can be a little wild at times. You seem to have taken advantage. What was the key to po posting that OBP? 
it's really just only swinging at pitches that I thought that I could do damage on. Um, that's something I worked on my last little bit in college and something I continued into pro ball. I just want to make sure that if I'm swinging, it's something I can do damage on and I'm not giving in or giving away at bats because of bad swing decisions. Yeah. And that kind of ties into something else I wanted to ask you about, because your chase rates at every level have been low. You're not somebody who's swinging outside the zone. Every batter would like to have the chase rates you have. How do you work on that? How do you improve that? Um, so some of it has been training. Um, in college, we would do sort of machines where you kind of put your head down. Our coach changes the height, direction of whatever the machine, and you have to make a swing decision on that pitch that you get off the machine. But then some of it is just focus in the box. So knowing where I want to hit the ball, knowing what the pitcher does, how he's trying to attack me, and then coming up with a plan on, okay, I'm looking for certain pitches here and not giving in and only swinging at those pitches. Is there anything that your plan – were there any adjustments you had to make to that plan as, as you saw single A, high A, and then an AFL pitching? Yeah, I think you know stuff kind of ticked up a little bit and guys had additional pitches the more you climb. So – you have to kind of narrow your focus even more instead of trying to cover two pitches, maybe you just pick one and go from there. Um, and in college, the zone's a little bit shorter and fatter. So in pro ball, it's a little longer and taller and skinnier. So just adjusting to that and figuring out, okay, these are strikes in pro ball and weren't in college and going from there. Yeah. Was that something you had to learn on your own? Was that something they warned you about the difference in zones? Um, you kind of heard a little bit about it, but it's something you don't really understand, I guess, until you see it. But there is definitely a significant difference, and it's just an adjustment. It's not good or bad one way or the other. It's just different. Yeah, and many guys playing in their first full season, you have this realization where this is your job now. This is just what you do every day. There is no class anymore. What was that moment for you where you realized, oh, this is my welcome. I'm an, I'm a pro baller. Like this is This is what I do every day. Um, I don't know if I had a specific moment, but there are just certain days throughout the year where I'm either standing for the anthem or, you know, when I wake up in the morning and head to the field, it's like, man, I get to go to the baseball field every day. This is my job now. This is awesome. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And it's an extreme blessing. Yeah. And moving from single A to high A like you did, what what were some of the differences you noticed in those levels and, and having to adjust there? Um, I think it's just, everything's a little bit more consistent. Some guys maybe had an extra pitch or their stuff was just around the zone a little bit more. Um, it's just something you have to get used to. Um, everyone's just a little bit better each and every step you climb. So just adjusting, getting used to it, and then going from there. Yeah, and between all three stops you had this year, who do you think was the most difficult pitcher to pay, to face? Uh Oh, Emiliano Teodo from no, the yeah. Rangers. I yeah. faced him a bunch when he was in Hickory, and then I faced him again in the Fall League. He was almost an entirely different pitcher in the Fall League. He was kind of a ride guy during the year um, and then became a sinker baller towards the end of the year. So he was tough, both versions of him. It was a tough A-B for sure. <laughs> yeah, especially with that velo that he has. Uh, yeah. Was it that first pitch that you realized, oh, this is not doing the same ride that it did in, Hick like in, in that league? Yeah, he threw me like a front hip two-seamer my AB against him in the fall league, and I'm like, where did that come from? Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, it was just – it was a tough AB after that. 
Yeah, I think that's that's the glory of the minor leagues is that everybody's working on everything and nobody's the yeah. same guy if you see him twice. Um, yeah. One other thing that stood out to me about the fall league and your experience there was you started getting in more time at first base. I know you have played first base in your career. You played it at UNC Charlotte. Um, but what was that discussion like where they said, hey, you know, we want you to still get some time at third base. We like your arm there, but we want you to see the other corner too. Um. Yeah, I think it was partially just because our fall league team didn't really have a first baseman. It was kind of a rotation over there. A bunch of us were just filling in and, you know, it was something where I was like, yeah, I can play first base if it gets me in there one or two more days a week. So I started doing that and yeah, just went from there. Like you said, I played there in college, so it wasn't a huge adjustment for me going over there. Oh, was that, that was more just from the rafters. It wasn't from the Braves or did the Braves tell you that that was coming? Um, they didn't tell me that it was coming. They just said, yeah, if it gets you in, then great. Go play some first base. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. And that ties into what I was going to ask next in terms of whether you are at third base or whether you are at first base, you are playing in an organization where there are two guys locked in at those positions between Austin Riley and Matt Olson. What is it like coming up through this system and, and seeing who's in the major leagues at those two positions? Yeah, it's awesome knowing that those two are up there and they're going to be there for a long time and they've been great for a long time. So it's cool to watch, like, even when you come back in the locker room after the games and the Braves game is on, just watching them go about their business and play the game. It's really fun to watch. Um, as for me, though, like how it affects me, it's not something you can really focus on. I'm just going about my business each and every day, trying to be the best player in person I can be. And whatever happens from there happens. And yeah. Even when you were drafted, were you looking at a depth chart? I mean, the Braves are a famous team. Everybody knows their situation. But were you somebody who was just like, oh, what does this mean for my future? Um, No, I, it's kind of hard not to, but it's not something I could focus on because none of that's in my control. So all I can do is, like I said, play as good as I can and become the best player I can. And whatever happens from there, it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, what were your expectations going into the draft? Had had you been talking to the Braves? Had you seen some of their scouts? Because you were the 125th pick. You weren't on many top 250 lists, which obviously only matter, or, you know, only matter to readers, but not necessarily to drafters. What were your expectations going into that process? Um, so I had gone through the draft process a little bit the year before, um, and I kind of learned from that that you can't go in there with any expectations because the draft is a – wild adventure and there's no telling what can happen um so i just went into it i was with my family and my fiance and you know i was just there waiting for a call i didn't have any expectations i didn't have any thoughts i just was just trying to go with the flow so what, what was the moment like when i'm assuming your agent called you and said hey atlanta's looking at you in the fourth round yeah it was a really cool feeling um it was almost just like a relief. There's the draft day is pretty stressful, I think, for most guys. Um, so being able to get that call on him saying, hey, they're going to take you here. It was just a huge relief. And it was awesome getting to celebrate it with my family and my fiance. Yeah. Were you somebody who was constantly checking your phone? Were you like looking for distractions? How do you handle that? Um, yeah, I kind of just tried to stay away from it, especially the day before. Um, on day one, I I think I played golf just to get away from it and keep away from my phone. But yeah. day two, I just woke up and tried going about my normal day. I trained in the morning um, and then went and spent time with my family when the draft started. And, you know, you being a Canadian out of Ontario, 
Uh, I'm always fascinated with stories from, you know, uh, there's a lot of good baseball up in Canada, but getting recruited out of Canada. I remember talking to Edouard Julien about this. We, he went to Auburn, got recruited out of Quebec, just kind of got noticed in some of these tournaments. What was your story in terms of going to UNC Charlotte and getting noticed? Yeah, uh, I had a difficult time, especially when I graduated. I had to take a gap year after high school because I didn't really have any offers, any significant offers after I graduated high school. So I took a gap year, just trained, played baseball, played with the Ontario Blue Jays, who my manager back then is actually, he was my pitching coach in Rome this year, Mike Steed, which was kind of a cool full circle moment. But that team goes on a trip every year where they go play a tour of colleges in the States on their way down to Jupiter for the WWBA in October or November, whenever it is. And one of our stops was Charlotte. I just happened to have a good game there. Um, and it was just something that all kind of fell into place. Yeah. So when you had the Rome pitching coach, at what point did you guys acknowledge like your history together? Did he play a role in, in getting you to the Braves? I mean, that's fascinating that you guys hooked up again. Yeah, it was really cool. It was awesome to see him. I love playing for coach seed. So it was awesome to see him. I'm not sure what role he had getting me to the Braves. Um, we never really discussed that, but Hmm. no, it was something a couple weeks in we're like man we've come a long way and we'll just reminisce every once in a while we're like we'll look back on where we were four years ago and it's like man i can't believe we're here now yeah and when you take a gap year like that and did every game feel like a showcase game i mean what was the pressure like yeah it was kind of stressful um but you know there was a lot that wasn't in my control i only focused on what i could control and I'm thankful for Coach Steed and his connections. They helped me get to Charlotte. And then going to Charlotte was the best thing that ever happened to me. So I wouldn't change any of it. Yeah. I mean, it got you to where you are now. When you say it's yeah. it's the best thing that ever happened to you. I mean, what did you do differently at Charlotte? I know you got off to a hot start in 2020, uh, which obviously got canceled early. But um, it seemed like you hit the ground running pretty well. What were you, What made you latch on so well with them? Um, I think just the coaching staff, they are extremely dedicated and they care about us a lot and they care about making sure that we improve as baseball players. They invest a ton of time, energy, and resources into us. If you look at our cage, it's just a bunch of toys, anything you can imagine to help you become a better baseball player. So being able to go there and player development focus that they have, it helped me a ton and got me to where I am today. At what point was the draft on your radar? I know you said you were considering it the year before or you thought you know you, you knew you were eligible, but at what point in your life even did you think, hey, this is going to be a career for me? Um, it was always a dream of mine to play. I think towards the end of my sophomore year, it became more of a reality, like, hey, maybe this might happen. Um, but really the day I got drafted and the day I got that call was when I was like, okay, yeah, I can actually do this and I can't wait to do this. Yeah. How, how has been a, how has the experience of being a pro baller uh, compared to what your expectations were? I think it's kind of what I expected. It's awesome. There's a ton of freedom, a ton of free time, especially in the mornings during the season. Um, but it's fun. I mean, I get to play baseball every day. You can't compete with that. It's the best job in the world. Yeah, for sure. And one of my favorite things to ask guys who this is pertinent to is how did you become a switch hitter? Like, how did that develop? At what age did you start hitting from both sides? 
So from what, I don't remember this because I was really young, but from what my dad said, basically the first time I ever started hitting, he got me like a plastic bat and some wiffle balls from Walmart. We were hitting in my front yard and I just said, I'm going to switch around and hit from the other side now. (laughs) And I did it. And then it kind of stuck. I had some growing pains growing up, but as I was growing older and coaches around me, they were like, Hey, this is a valuable tool. Like it's something you should keep doing. So I just have been doing it since I started hitting pretty much since I was four or five years old. Yeah. And for people who can't switch hit or don't switch hit, uh, what is the experience like having to hit from both sides, work out from both sides? Does it feel like you're doing twice the work? Does it depend on the starting pitcher that day? I mean, how do you split that up? Yeah. Growing up, it was, it felt like it was twice the work. Like I was always trying to balance getting enough reps on each side. Um, pro ball has been a little different. It's a lot more difficult right-handed just because I don't see a ton of lefties all the time. So it's trying to find a way to simulate game at bats right-handed on days when, or weeks when I'm not going to face a lefty and trying to stay fresh and locked in from the right side. Um, but pregame, usually it's pitcher dependent. I'll do more work from the side that I'm going to hit most in that game. Um, but then, like I said, there'll be days where I'll do a bunch of right-handed focus just to be able to stay ready in case I do see a lefty. Gotcha. All right, David, we'll, we'll wrap up with this. I swear I'm not asking this just because you're Canadian. I did this because I looked it up on your UNC Charlotte page and it says, and I quote here, loves to play pond hockey, which makes sense. I mean, anybody who's ever grown up, I grew up in New England. I, pond hockey is a lot of fun to play. What was your position? Uh, I played forward the first few years I played hockey and then defense my last couple of years. I stopped playing around 13 or 14, um, but... Yeah, I played both growing up. Fair enough. What what about hockey do you carry into your baseball game? Um, I don't know if there's too much that I carry into my baseball game. I haven't played hockey in probably 10 years or so, so it's been a while. <laughs> I'm sure the Braves are happy about that, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's probably for the best. But yeah, it's it was fun while it lasted and while I was playing. But I definitely enjoy playing baseball way more in the warm weather. It's a lot more fun than the cold rings. Yeah, no, fair enough. And and as a switch hitter, what was your shooting hand? I was a right-handed. I do everything right-handed. Um, golf righty, play hockey righty. Everything's right-handed except for playing baseball, where I do okay. both. All right. Well, you had the backhand in, in the, your back pocket if you ever needed yeah. going into yeah. the slot. All right. Well, David McCabe, thank you so much for joining us this week on the show before the show. Best of luck with everything moving forward with the Braves and the rest of the offseason as you go into your second full season. We'll, we'll be watching for sure. Uh, Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, continuing on on this week's episode of the show before the show, we do have some big time breaking news. According to MLB Network Insider and friend of the show, John Paul Morosi, JP in a in an X. From a few minutes ago, I don't know what you call him now, post, I'm not going to call it a post, in a tweet from a few minutes ago on the place formerly known as Twitter.com, which still has the domain Twitter.com, quote, Juan Soto trade agreement is being finalized now, source confirms the deal as Jack Carey of the Yes Network and Joel Sherman reported 
sends Soto and Trent Grisham to New York from San Diego in exchange for Michael King, Drew Thorpe, Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez, and Kyle Higashioka. Um, this obviously is a monster deal, and it involves one of the best players in baseball, although a guy who really we didn't talk about or hear about a lot last year, except in the context of like, what's going on with the Padres? Um, Sam, obviously we are going to discuss this from the uh, perspective of what it brings to the San Diego Padres in exchange for Juan Soto uh, and Soto with a, a free agency year coming up and all of the stuff that is to be there for him. Still had a very good year last year, still finished with a 930 OPS, still was an all-star, still finished top 10 in MVP voting, won a silver slugger. Um, and perhaps the wildest thing about Juan Soto, he is uh, – He's he's 25. Juan Soto is 25 <laughs> years old and will not turn 26 until May 20th of next year. Um, but let's let's hear your thoughts on this from the prospect perspective in this package going back to San Diego. Yeah, I mean, listen, I am always going to be anti-trading Juan Soto. Like I said that at the time that the Nats traded him to the Padres and got that killer package that involved Mackenzie Gore, C.J. Abrams, James Wood, Robert Hassel III, Arlene Susana. Um, you know, that was a deep, deep package, and that was a blockbuster deal by all accounts. I still think you want Juan Soto, but the Padres are doing this trade because they are trying to cut a little bit back on salary. They went all in on 2023, like you said, Tyler. Missed the playoffs. Uh, didn't quite work, so they're going to try some new things. Juan Soto, only one year left on the deal. Uh, Scott Boris is his agent. Scott Boris famously tries to tell his clients, let's go to free agency. Juan Soto has had extension offers on the table from the Nats. I think it was $440 million and turned it down because he could get half a billion, upwards of half a billion, uh, next offseason. So that's why... The Padres are where they are. They, they're they moving him because there's only one year left. Um, they're only losing one year of Juan Soto. And they're sending him to the Yankees, who work out really well as a trade partner. One thing the Padres have identified, you know, according to reports, is that they were looking for pitching. They wanted to beef up their pitching core. Um, I think that's one concern they had. And you look at who they've signed in the last few years, bring in Manny Machado, bring in Xander Bogarts. Um you know, these are big time bat additions and those guys are going to be in San Diego for a long time. The arms, they don't have that necessarily. Now there are some fun guys coming along, uh, in the system. Robbie Snelling was one of the best pitchers in the minor leagues last year from a statistical standpoint. Dylan Lesko was really coming along strong, uh, as he regained form from Tommy John surgery. He has really good changeup. The Yankees are, are flush with pitching. Um, they have some good bats as well, but they have the arms to spare and the ones that you rattled off there, Tyler, you know, Drew Thorpe is the big prospect return here. Michael King is a very, very good pitcher. And and I think for, from the Padres and for their fans, the first they're gonna, guy gonna, they're going to look at is Michael King. And I get that. From our perspective, Drew Thorpe, he's our number 99 overall prospect right now. Yeah, I was he's gonna got say, in he, there. Is the, he is the top 100 guy in this deal. Yeah. He, he snuck in there at the very end. Um, I've put together my own top 100 that I'm going to still – fiddle with as we work on ours uh but let sam me just say the, he, he does the shadow top 100 like there's a shadow cabinet in the uk sam does the shadow top 100 just to keep checks and balances on the top 100 no i i do this because this is how we do our process right, <laughs> right, right, like right, right, right. i submit my top 100 jonathan mayo jim callis they submit theirs and we all mix it together anyways drew thorpe i have jumping at least 30 places uh if not more 
Um, I haven't looked at it before this, but he's going to make a significant jump. That changeup is deadly that he has. That's what made him so effective in 2023. He was actually our pitching prospect of the year. He pitched at high A and double A, finished with a 2.52 ERA, struck out 182 batters in 193rd one in one third innings. So he was durable. He was effective from beginning to end. He was even better at double A than he was at at high A. Uh, struck out 44 batters in 30 and a third innings, had a 1-4-8 ERA in five starts with the Somerset Patriots. The stuff is really good. That changeup is deadly. It's going to help him get lefties out and righties out. Um, the fastball and slider can be above average pitches, and he throws strikes. That's a lot to dream on right there. The other, uh, so, you know, you throw him in with Dylan Lisco and with Robbie Snelling. That's three top 100 arms that San Diego Padres have, which is crazy because, again, just a couple of years ago, they traded for Juan Soto. That is right. a trade that should clean out your system. And they've pretty well stocked back up. Um, so they give themselves another lottery ticket with that. Randy Vasquez, I'm I'm fascinated by who he's going to be. He's on the older side for a pitching prospect. He was the number 13 prospect in the Yankee system at the time of the trade. Just turned 25 last month. Has some major league experience. Got in 11 games, five starts last year with the Yanks. 37 and a two-thirds inning. Struck out 33 in that time. Had a 2.87 ERA, but that's kind of a small sample stuff. Got hit all around a lot more at AAA with a 4.59 ERA and 80 and a third innings. Um, somebody I think the Yankees were kind of hoping would catch on this year and graduate. He's got an above-average fastball. He's got two really good breaking pitches in the curveball and slider. Command and control can be kind of iffy, and that's that's going to be the big question mark. But, you know, if Drew Thorpe is the higher-end prospect, Vasquez is the guy who can help out San Diego more quickly, if not right away. He should be in the conversation for either a rotation spot, swingman spot, something going into the spring. And if not, he's going to be triple-A depth. Again, on the older side in his age 25 season, but it, the Padres are looking for that type of lottery ticket right now. He'll be around the teens uh, right now for the Padres system that it continues to get deeper. Um, but that's another solid addition some of these other moves, you know, the, the Padres need a catcher, so they get Kyle Higashioka. Johnny Brito is technically a graduated prospect, but adds to that upper-level depth as well. It's an interesting move for one year of Juan Soto. You know, if you're going to make the move, this is the type of deal that that needed to happen. And I know there are always rumors of, like, where is he going to go? And the Yankees always seemed like the right partner for this. It's because they could do this. You know, you look at who's left now in the Yankee system – at the top of that system, it's Chase Hampton, who's a, a really good prospect in his own right and ha might have better pure stuff than Drew Thorpe. He's just not quite as effective throwing it. Spencer Jones, Jason Dominguez, those guys are still there. Uh, they're top two prospects. Austin Wells is still around. Roderick Arias, who's played in the DSL so far but could be a top 100 prospect before long if his uh, stuff kind of takes off. He's also been stateside. Uh, he was stateside last year, but if the results take off in full season ball in 2024, we could see him enter the top 100. The Yankees system is still dynamic and interesting, um, but, you know, hey, the Yankees are making big swings again. They kind of need to do that. They can't just be treading water uh, and putting Juan Soto and Aaron Judge in the same outfield and Alex Verdugo, who they acquired from Red Sox, the Red Sox earlier this week. It's a better outfield than it was, that's for sure. Uh, and the the ceiling is quite high, maybe not defensively, but the Yankees are, are a bit more interesting. Now, how do they follow up? We'll, we'll have to see. Um, but it, 
It's it's a it's a good old fashioned winter meetings blockbuster is what it is. Finally, finally, some good old fashioned winter meetings excitement. Um, and it was not the only move made by the San Diego Padres today. They are wheeling and dealing, and they made a selection in the major league phase of the Rule Five draft as well. And that, folks, is what we call a segue <laughs> as we go from talking about Juan Soto and that prospect package to the Rule Five draft, which was today, as noted. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, the sixth. Um, teams all taking part in the Rule Five draft, which of course is dictated by major league standings in reverse order. Those teams are allowed to pick in the Rule 5 draft, which is now not, of course, the same as uh, the Major League first-year player draft, which involves a lottery process. So uh, some teams uh, jumping into the mix in the Rule 5 draft. There were five ranked prospects taken in the Major League phase of the Rule 5 draft, uh, and there was, I believe, just one ranked prospect taken in the Minor League phase. Minor League phase is a little bit more complicated for the average fan. Uh, I know even for me, somebody who's worked in baseball for 14 years, the Rule 5 draft Minor League phase is even more complicated. Uh, the ranked guys who went in the Major League phase, the Kansas City Royals selected right-handed pitcher Matt Sauer, who's the 25th ranked Yankees prospect, the Chicago White Sox, Took left-hander Shane Drolan from the Boston Red Sox, who was their 19th-ranked prospect. Uh, Nassim Nunez, the Miami Marlins' number 16 prospect, was taken by the Washington Nationals. And the Cleveland Guardians got an interesting one in third baseman Davison De Los Santos, who was the Arizona Diamondbacks' number 5-ranked prospect. And we just talked about him recently, actually, on the show. Uh, but, Sam, give us the overview of what you saw in the Rule 5 draft today, Major League, Minor League side, some of the things that are, are highlights. Yeah, I mean, when you look at this year's draft, one thing stands out right away. There are only 10 picks uh, made in this year's draft, which is lower than we've had in, I think, a decade. Um, and and I think that's part of what we were talking about before, Tyler, uh, at, the, at the open of the show, is that, yes, this is a good way to get these guys opportunities in the major leagues that they are not getting with their current farm clubs. And for those who don't clubs. understand the rule five draft, essentially players uh, accumulate a certain amount of service time in their professional baseball careers. And then they either have to be protected by being added to the 40 man roster, or they are available to be selected by other franchises in the rule five draft. And yeah, exactly. essentially it's so teams can't just stockpile all of the top talent, even in their minor league system and just sit on it. And I think, you know, it somewhat goes back to the days of, you know, back in the, in the 1930s and forties and fifties, when certain organizations would have 30 minor league affiliates and they would just rack up all this talent and that talent never went anywhere. This is a way to more equitably distribute opportunities if possible for some prospects who probably aren't going to make the big leagues with their current team and may have an avenue to get there elsewhere. Yeah, totally. Uh, and I'm and I'm very in favor of that. I'm excited for players being like, hey, you have to be in the major leagues. <laughs> That's what, why you're coming to spring training. It's not like, oh, it might be if you're sticking with us, it's because you have to be in the majors or else you get returned toward your toward uh, you get returned to your original team. Um, so when you look at this, the success rate of the rule five draft in the last few years, it hasn't been a lot of everyday guys. It's periphery players, it's bench players, it's bullpen arms, it's middle relievers, not necessarily closers. Uh, so I think that's why teams were more reticent to make a pick this year. That being said, Davison De Los Santos is a big swing for Cleveland. And I love that because what is defined the Cleveland Guardians offense the last few years, maybe outside Jose Ramirez, is a lack of power. This is not an organization that's really developed power hitting types really well. And Davison De Los Santos is pure power. I think we have a 65 grade on his power right now. 
when you look at what he is as a raw, it's probably eight raw. It's 80 raw. It's top of the scale. The guy hits the ball really hard and really far when he makes contact. Uh, he really struggled, as we talked about last time, Tyler. Early on in the season with AA Amarillo, they sent him back to the complex to work on his swing. He came back in the second half last year and was really, really good. Like, was looking back towards to his being his regular self. He was slugging above 500. He was hitting above 300. He was super aggressive, was not walking much. And I think a lot of that was like trying to make up for lost time. <laughs> like if you're a power hitter, you're not going to get your reputation back by taking walks. So that's going to be a big question mark at the major league level. The other thing for me is where is he going to play defensively? Because the Guardians also got Kyle Manzardo last season in a trade with the Rays. And coming off the fall league in which Kyle Manzardo looked great, he dealt with a shoulder injury during the season but looked healthy and very productive in the AFL. I want Kyle Manzardo to be their first baseman uh, or at least be considered for that. Davison De Los Santos listed as a third baseman, some major defensive question marks, probably going to be a first baseman long term. I don't think he's going in to necessarily compete with Kyle Manzardo because he's been at double A. Manzardo's played triple A, but he's not going to knock Ramirez off third. Maybe you bring him in as a guy who could play either position, primarily DH. I know they have like Josh Naylor who could also DH and also play some first base. This just gives Cleveland more options to provide that power that they've been lacking. And that's what I love. This is not a move just designed for the periphery of the roster, although that's what it might be initially. Davis and De Los Santos has the power to be an everyday guy. And if they can have the patience, have the roster space to keep him around, that's going to be fascinating. And I, and I love that pick. Just, just taking that swing. Hey, they have one roster, one open spot on their 40 man. Use it for this for now. They may decide in two weeks, hey, you know what? We're, we went out and signed somebody better. We're going to return you. We tried. But this is your one opportunity to try. You can't like go back and make a rule five pick. Uh, so I, I, like, I love that swing from uh, the Cleveland Guardians in this. One other guy I'm, I'm interested in here real quick is, is the Nationals pick, Nassim Nunez, who you mentioned, Tyler, uh, was the Marlins' number 16 prospect. Really, really good defender at both short and and second base. Uh, he was actually one of our finalists for Defender of the Year for the Mill Awards. But uh, real question on the impact of the bat. It's 20 power. You look at Davison De Los Santos, talked about it being 80 raw. It's 20 raw, maybe, for uh, Nassim Nunez. I don't think the bat's going to play right away in the majors. But if you're the Nationals and you're in this phase where you're sort of kind of rebuilding, you take a potential superstar defender who is a really good runner as well, Use him as a bench infielder, somebody you can use at short, somebody you can use at second. See if he sticks. See if you can get something out of the bat. Uh, so that's really interesting. And, you know, so many of these picks, you look, you go down the list. Mitch Spence, Matt Sauer, Anthony Molina, Shane Drohan, who you mentioned, Ryan Fernandez, Justin Slayton, Stephen Kolek, Carson Coleman. A lot of these guys are just relief options. Or in some of the cases, like a Shane Drohan, you look at it like maybe you're a potential number five starter. Uh, but a lot of these guys are sinker slider types who could move to the major leagues right away, but there's still enough in their game that they didn't get that major league shot just yet. Uh, if if there's an arm that I'm really interested to see if he's going to stick, it's Ryan Fernandez with the Cardinals. Uh, the fastball plays in the upper 90s. It's just super hittable. doesn't have a great shape. He has a slider and a cutter. Both of those are potential plus pitches. He throws strikes. Enough is there for him to be a major leaguer, but he got hit pretty hard in AAA last year, so hopefully the Cardinals can squeeze something out of him. But that's just how the Rule 5 works. It's it's a lot of rolls of the dice and, and hoping you can get something out of here, but 
usually at best it's a handful of middle relievers and bench bats. And uh, if you want a complete rundown of the pick-by-pick pick choices in the Rule 5 draft, you can find those at MLB.com. Uh, Jonathan Mayo on that story. And uh, there's already a tweet saying, no, 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 the Yankees and Padres don't have a deal done. So who knows what this is going to sound like by tomorrow. Uh, but we're going to step aside. Uh, Josh Jackson swings by for Ghost of the Miners, and then we're back to wrap it up next. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club or player hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One has a place in sporting history. The others never even had a sporting chance. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Ventura Scrubbers. B. The Naples Napkin Makers. C, the Troy Washerwomen. You've cleaned up nicely if you picked C, the Troy Washerwomen, who weren't afraid to get dirty across two minor leagues in the 1890s and in 1900. Suiting up as representatives of the seat of New York's Rensselaer County, that's about five miles northeast of Albany along the Hudson River, the Washerwomen played in the old Eastern League and in the old New York State League. If you wear a lot of detachable shirt collars, you have Troy to thank. There are competing legends over who invented the detachable collar, but both put the sartorial revolution in Troy in the 1820s, with either Hannah Montague coming up with the idea as a partial solution to her blacksmith husband's everlasting dirty shirt problem, or with a local store owner and retired preacher by the name of Ebenezer Brown delivering the innovation. Hannah Montague, Ebenezer Brown, it all comes out in the wash. Over the next decades, Troy stitched itself into a major player in the textile manufacturing industry, and minor league ball followed suit in the Berg, going big in the 1870s. Of course, it's impossible to iron out the details of how most minor league teams took their names in the 19th century, but in the mid-1890s, with Troy producing about nine out of every ten shirt collars worn in America, the club that was typically referred to as the Trojans began to wear the nickname of the Washerwomen. But at the end of July of 1894, Troy's Washerwomen had an attendance problem and hung the Eastern League out to dry by disbanding mid-season. After an emergency meeting of circuit officials at New York City's Broadway Hotel, the franchise was awarded to Scranton. But Troy's reputation as a baseball town suffered no permanent stain, the washerwomen were back in action in the middle of 99. It was a bit of a cycle for the washerwomen. They'd faded out of one circuit mid-season five years earlier, and here they were with a clean start in the New York State League when the Auburn prisoners were released from the loop and replaced with Troy on August 1st. But the washerwomen were in turn prisoners to the same roster Auburn had had and the club failed to sew up a better record than 43-69, and 69, filthier than any team in the league save the Schenectady Electricians. 
The new century was filled with the same soiled linen for the washerwomen, who went 48 and 66 to once more finish second to last. In 01, everything old was new again. The Troy Trojans sieged the hearts of local fans, and the washerwomen moniker became scarce and forgotten as a lost sock. And that's how the washerwomen were washed up. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these players shouted it out in the minors of yesteryear? A. Franklin Hollers B. Clarence Hoots C. Ovid Shrieks Want to know the answer? Scream! Or tune in the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is building a snowman, and I've got to hide my carrots. Wow, can you believe it? All those big picks that were made in the Rule 5 draft and those trades that did and didn't happen. That was amazing stuff. Wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show, we uh, we instituted a challenge last week, and I believe in very short order, I became the winner. Uh, Sam, let's let's hear the, the outline and how you lost. Two things happened here. Uh, <laughs> one was, first, Ben tried to get us. He did! He did. But he tacitly admitted also by trying to get us that he had lost already, right? Well, he'd already lost, so he was trying to rope us into his scheme. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so this Sabotaging. Challenge. Sabotaging. Yeah, we haven't yeah, said what the challenge explain. was. If, for those who didn't listen last week... First off, uh, what's wrong with you? For those who yeah. didn't listen last week. Go back what and were, listen to last week. What were you doing that was better this. than this? Yeah. Um, so there is a thing called Whamageddon in which you listen to the Wham... You try to hold off on listening to this, the Wham! song last Christmas for as long as you can after December 1st. Uh, so last week was our first episode of December. We issued the challenge. Who's going to make it the longest? Literally like that night, I think we got the text from Ben that he had heard the song played by a pedicab in New York City, which I said it happened to me too, right. but the contest hadn't started yet. So they're constant threats, these pedicabs, just playing Christmas tunes all around the city, <laughs> trying to make us joyful. You could be sabotaged at any time. Yeah. 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 This was on uh, Friday. So it's the day after we talked about this on the podcast. The next night, I was, uh, well, pretty close to Madison Square Garden uh, on my way to the penultimate kiss show. And uh, yeah, pe a pedicab came by blasting last Christmas. And I was like, well, there you go. There you have it. So I pulled out my phone, shot like a five or six second video. Sam and Tyler don't like to, you know, get texts from me or acknowledge my text. So Sam just went ahead and said, I'm not uh, opening. I'm this. not opening this. And he had a good excuse because he thought it might be the Christmas challenge. Then Tyler, who didn't want to open my text and wasn't planning on it either, was like, oh, yeah, good point. And true. I just felt you guys had a good cover story for not engaging with my text, which might have been really important. But no, it was just totally ignored. So you know what's thanks. funny? I will I will admit I'm the worst person in the world at like if I open a text while I'm doing something else, I think I was I think I was broadcasting a game maybe when the text came in or something. And I saw it and I was like, oh, I gotta watch whatever this is. And then I set my phone down, completely forgot about it. Which that's one of the worst times to text me. The other worst time is if you text me something and I see it when I wake up, I am never responding to your text. I will never remember until I've had 18 gallons of coffee. I don't remember anything that happened from the time I woke up until I am conscious, which is like several hours later. Um, those are the two times, but I totally spaced it. And then Sam responded and said like, oh yeah, I'm not going to watch this. And I was like, oh, 
Yeah, that's a good point. Because I totally would have watched it, and then I would have. And I actually wasn't, you know, I like to be devious when it calls for it, but I wasn't <laughs> even trying to, like, get you guys out with a video, which I guess maybe that would have been the case. I was more just saying. Can you believe this happened? Yeah, yeah. look, look, this happened so quick. Like, immediately. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the rules if, like, you're out because someone sends you a video of the fact that they're out. I don't know. we we got to check the, so, the bylaws. So here. it's funny. That that happened. And then the next day I was out, I was over somebody's house and they were playing Christmas music and they had promised me that it had been skipped or it was like eliminated from the playlist and it wasn't. <laughs> so I like yelped when it came out well, and she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And like, I thought it was whatever. So wow. it happened. It, it's over. It's almost a relief at that point. But I got a text from my friend Tom and his son, Grayson. And unlike Ben, like, you know, I see Ben's text. It's a pedicab. I, I can see what's happening. I, I I can predict what's happening. This is like my friend Tom's being like, oh, hey, Grayson wanted to send you a Christmas message. I'm like, that's super nice. I open the, the message from Grayson, who's, you know, only a few years old. And he says, sorry, Sam, you're out. And then they pan <laughs> to the speaker in the corner. <laughs> and they had been blasting the music because they listened to the podcast. Your friend so, Tom is awesome. Yeah. That's terrific. And I was like, I texted him all these things. I'm like, no, Grace. You, <laughs> you also don't have listen way, to your father's schemes. You also have way better friends than I do. None of my friends have ever listened to a podcast that I'm on. And I really don't blame him. He did him. say he had a lot of yard work to do. And that, that was his <laughs> excuse. But, you know, we're grateful to have you, Tom and Grace. And we're re- listeners of all ages. Um, but just don't That's try to pull great. this with us. That no, is good job. Great. Good job getting Sam. We all yeah. want to get one over on Sam Dykstra. It's tough to do. You got to get a pretty early. That is you your child way early your in the child. morning. Yeah. Roping in your kid to, to get Sam is that is next level. And I admire it. I admire the hustle on that. That's very cool. Uh, I still have not heard it. I'm sure I'll hear it later today. Now that I've said that I've jinxed myself into hearing that atrocious band. Can you imagine like. I'm a good person. I wanted to send you the video that Tom sent me and be like, oh, oh we have a young listener. It. What a guy. Now I know I can't watch any videos that any of that either of you send me or anyone else who listens to this podcast, at least through Christmas. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. I've got I got to be on guard against everyone now. Yep, so that t- those texts that Tyler wasn't going to respond to anyway. I'm not. Now I'm doubly not <laughs> responding to him. That's perfect. My wife is in the next room. She's probably going to like so surreptitiously now send me like, oh, look at the dogs. They're being so she cute. She should just put it on in the background right now. I know. Yeah. She really should. I'm very glad that she's on a call. Uh, or is she? She's just deviously made. To- I'm going to walk out of this room. There's going to be like a poster of George Michael. I'm just going to play that garbage song. That's wham indeed, you know? Uh, anyway, how about all that baseball news? We'll get a chance to talk more in detail about it next week on the show before the show podcast. Uh, Next week, we'll be back to normal schedule-ish. I'm going to be doing a college basketball game at BYU next Wednesday and then coming home on Thursday. So we'll get this to you, you know, Friday, normal time. And uh, we'll have more baseball stuff to talk about. Will Shohei Otani be a Blue Jay by then? Maybe. Or a Dodger. Or something else. Uh man, if he signs before the end of this podcast, we're really screwed now. I timestamped it with the fact that he's still a free That's agent. A major league signing. We don't have to. Worry yeah, about we don't have to talk about that. That's you know whatever. Just because he's the coolest dude on the planet. Um, no, dude never played in minor league baseball. Most of you're, yeah, you're, 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 you're yeah. Take that, that Shohei. This is the only yeah. baseball outlet on the planet that's not talking about you. Take that. Yeah. All right, for uh, for Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra, the Wham-inclusive uh, holiday-celebrating dudes in New York City, my name is Wham-free Tyler Mon, and we will catch you next week. Next week.